This is WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. And now at five o'clock, it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Today on News and Culture, we'll be rebroadcasting an episode from our archives before COVID hit the United States from December of 2019, entitled Little Kids, Big Things. We hope you enjoy. First up, Oliver Wang and Anna Hiltner talked to Professor Casey Lou Williams, one of the directors of Princeton University's Baby Lab. So this past week, Oliver and I visited this place called the Baby Lab. The Baby Lab? Which is in a modern building in a cute little corner of campus. And we met up with Casey Lou Williams, a professor of psychology here at Princeton. Yeah. Okay, great. So this is the Baby Lab? Can you mind walking us around, showing us what's here? Sure, so you are standing in our greeting room where families from all over central New Jersey come to participate in our developmental studies. There's a thick, colorful carpet on the floor, some toy trains, a couple of blocks, and slinkies. A lot of slinkies. And typically kids walk in and enjoy it right away, thanks to these toys and the research assistants who've been, you know, um, who've been working hard to develop good rapport with families in the area. The Baby Lab is directed by Casey and his colleague, Professor Lauren Emberson. They study the way kids, really young kids, and babies learn. So Casey and all his fellow researchers, postdocs, grad students, undergraduates, they're in touch with around 1,500 families in the Princeton and Trenton areas. We call families when their kids age into um, a particular study. We invite them to come participate. They are so generous with their time. They are volunteering, in a sense, um, for the purposes of furthering what we know about early child development. They come to the lab for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then take off. So family walks in here. And And so parents will bring their babies into the lab. And after playing around with the trains and slinkies and rolling around on the carpet, they'll go in one of two directions. So there's the meerkat over there. What's behind that door? (laughs) So I will show you, we have five testing rooms where we do different kinds of experiments with kids. And so we walk towards this door with a meerkat head on it. So it's a meerkat, it says F-N-I-R, F-N-I-R cat. it's kind of a play on words, it's too confusing. Okay. (laughs) It's F-NIR. Functional Near Infrared Spectroscopy. So F-NIR cat. Oh, look at this. And um, what uh, we've been doing recently is putting this cap that you can see here on infant's heads, putting another cap on an adult or a caregiver's head, and we can actually look at brain activity between the two as they engage in natural The cap Casey's talking about is this black, blue, and pink mesh type thing with wires sticking out of it. It's pretty intimidating looking. And you're like, all right, hey, bud, we're going to put this on your head. (laughs) Yeah, and they're usually fine with it. It feels like a fun, if not weird, baseball cap or something. And uh, we, you know, they don't detect a thing. We're actually emitting near-infrared light toward their head. And this light goes through the scalp and skull and a little bit into cortex. And the light bounces back out of the brain. Some of it gets absorbed, but some bounces back out. And it bounces out differently depending on whether or not there is um, blood in that spot. So there's this parent in the room and their baby. And they're both hooked up to these blue and pink mesh caps with wires sticking out of them. And one of Casey's researchers will be behind this big black curtain as the parent plays with their kid. They'll sing songs, roll ball around, talk to each other, and the researcher will be watching which areas of the brain are activated. And what they found was that... On average, the baby's brain is in control of the adult's brain. You tend to see uh, the baby's brain activity mirrored a few seconds later in the adult's. What that means is when an area of a baby's brain is activated, it causes the same area in the adult's brain to be activated. So when a baby smiles, a section of its brain lights up on the screen behind that big black curtain. And then, just a couple moments later, the corresponding section of the adult's brain will light up. It's like the baby is controlling your mind. Well, kind of. Basically, it means that the baby and the person they're interacting with are linked. Like sausages. Kind of. (laughs) We're not scientists here. 
But the important thing is that Casey gets to look at the baby's brain in a social context. So it's really prioritizing our social lives as a way to do neuroscience because we're able to look at two brains at the same time and that's the most natural context for early development and for learning, right? Everything we learn is in a social context with another person nearby at the beginning of life. And so this is giving us a window into how two brains coordinate in addition to how two bodies coordinate. That's the first room, the meerkat room, the F meerkat room. And so we walk down the hall, which, by the way, has like a couple hundred baby photos taped up along it. A lot of babies. Oh my gosh, so many babies. <laughs> yes, these are all participants um, on, uh, on the wall. Their parents gave us permission to take photos and put them on the wall. Aww. And so that adds a bit of a bit of color to the lab. It's so cute. <laughs> Actually, around 900 babies visit this lab every year. And Casey's been doing this for six years. That adds up to a lot of babies. So the next room, the owl room, has a chair in front of a big television screen. So they sit here on their parents' lap, and they look at this screen right in front of you. And, for example, they might see a picture of a dog on the left and a baby on the right and they'll hear a very simple sentence like where's the baby the point of this room is to see how quickly babies can pick up on linguistic cues and we measure their eye movements as they and these are young children right we measure their eye movements to see if they can look at the correct uh, object and how well you can do this when you're really young turns out to be super important. Their speed and efficiency in doing so is related to their later vocabulary growth, um, even their language and cognitive outcomes five, seven years later. So there's something about the ability to process very simple sentences when you're young that gives rise to um, further and further learning. Age is super important in learning. I'm sure most of you already know this, but it's just easier to learn things when you're younger. Babies have two main advantages. One is their brains are highly plastic, so they are ready to be molded by experience in the environment. And in some ways, that makes them more powerful than, um, than either of you because you've already, you know, undergone, uh, you know, neural maturation. It's to hear. <laughs> and the other advantage they have is that they're immersed in their environment, for example, their language environment in a very deep way. So babies are better than us because their brains are more plastic, which means that they can more easily rewire their neural connections and because they're completely immersed in a learning environment. Like everything is new to you when you're a baby. And if you're like Anna or me, you learn things in controlled environments usually, like in a classroom, which isn't ideal. It's a very different way of learning. and it is not as immersive. So there's something about the baby's brain that is ready and waiting and the you know, Im immersive, fun, dynamic way that they learn with caregivers on the floor, with toys, having fun, that gives them a leg up in many ways with learning. So that kind of sucks for people like Anna and me. But we have to keep moving, and Casey takes us by this door with a kangaroo on it. The kangaroo room is boring, okay? <laughs> so the kangaroo room is boring. But then we step into the next room, which has another big television screen with a chair in front of it. Underneath the screen, there are these two black knobby things with lenses on their ends. This is an eye tracker. It's kind of like the room you were just in, except this is an automated little machine, so it's right in there. And you can just sit there and look at this screen, and the eye tracker can automatically detect where you're looking and when. And you can use people's eye movements as a window into what they're interested in, what they're engaged by, and how they process information. So we use that to study various aspects of early um, perceptual development, whether it's you know speech and language or vision. So do you know what uh, babies are interested in, in general? Or? They like, <laughs> they like varied, they like diverse 
perceptual input. So that's why they're drawn to motion. Um, they're interested in things that are dynamic and changing. They're interested in people. Nothing is more dynamic and full of motion than people early on. And we have all of, we have these faces that make emotional expressions. We have eyes that lock in with theirs. We have very dynamic mouths and babies learn that the very quickly learn that the most interesting thing in the room is uh, their caregiver's face. And that is a, um, a very convenient for our species because it's how we learn. It's probably how we survive. It's how we learn to read the environment. Babies need other people to survive. It's pretty obvious. But I mean, we non-babies also need babies to survive in a sense. Can I ask, what is it like to work with kids day in and day out with what seems to be hundreds of kids? <laughs> I think this is one of the most vibrant places to be on campus and it's wonderful. I myself don't test participants anymore, but I think it's a great way to spend one's day. You know, I think it is a dimension of the experience in the baby lab that a lot of people value because you get to know humanity, you get to understand development um, in, in depth and in a way that's simply fun. Babies are babies and babies are cute. They need us and we need them. And so if you're having a bad day, if you're you know, just writing endlessly or, or it's been a really hectic time, Sometimes interacting with the kid for 20 minutes, I think, can really swoop in and remind you that it's okay. Things are okay. So what do we do with all this information? I mean, babies are connected to us. We're connecting to babies. We all were babies at one point in our lives. And the more we learn about them, the more we realize how much what happens to us when we're babies affects who we're going to be when we grow up. With almost shocking precision, you can, you can take a cluster of factors about somebody's childhood and predict you know, their, their future, for example, whether or not they'll finish high school. And what does that mean for someone who understands the science better than almost anyone else? Someone who really gets babies. I think about adversity much differently now. I think about poverty much differently now, simply because I know a lot of the, um, a lot of the science about the long-lasting effects of facing adversity, or for example, being in poverty growing up. And this isn't to say that your fate is determined by the kind of baby you are. Can people escape beyond the environment that they're raised in? Yes, right? Not everybody, but in some cases you do see great resilience and people can withstand these risk factors and you know rise above them but right now it's just not fair our first few years mean so much what happens to us then can decide to a large degree what happens to us in the future that inequality seems predetermined it's pretty sad and casey acknowledges this but he's also hopeful by doing good science and by developing effective interventions on problems. We're only going to learn more and more about how to help kids develop and how to give every kid a fair chance to thrive. Casey told us that he's noticed a change in himself since he started the baby lab. He sees it everywhere he goes. Um, I think what it's done over time is given me a window into why adults are how they are, why adults do what they do, and by thinking about the experiences in life that can give rise to different kinds of outcomes, I think that gives me you know, some, some decent understanding and appreciation um, of who people are. The Baby Lab helps us understand babies, but it also helps us understand ourselves. So today on the show, we're gonna do our own kind of Baby Lab. We're calling it Little Kids, Big Things. Uh, we don't have any babies talking, but we have elementary and middle school kids, siblings, friends. You might learn a lot, maybe not, but either way, stay with us. 
Next, reporter Elizabeth Shway talks to two kids getting ready for their big performance in The Christmas Carol at the McCarter Theatre Centre in Princeton. Now Christmas has come and the new year begins. Pray open your doors and let us come in with our wassail, 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 wassail. It's that time of the year again. The holiday spirit is kicking in and Christmas songs seem to be playing everywhere. On a cold November night, I walked to McCarter Theatre, a local theatre here in Princeton, to talk with two kids named Sam and Camille. They're part of the theatre's annual production of A Christmas Carol. Sam and Camille shared with me some of the things that are most important to them, their fears and their love for acting. My name is Sam, I'm nine and three quarters. My name is Camille and I'm 10 and I'm in fourth grade. The most important things in Sam's life right now is his cat and two stuffed animals. My cat is important to me, his name is Boo. He's kind of like my mascot because I'm a cat person and I really love cats, so I like drawing cats and yeah, I'm just a cat person. Boo has lived with Sam for three years now. He was a rescue cat from Trenton. He was found in a motor of a car. I think it's important to bring people or even animals into our lives who have had maybe a tough life. And then I have these two stuffed animals, Ruff Ruff and Quack Quack, that I've had since like I was a baby, and they're like my two loveys that I really like to snuggle up with. I, when I'm angry, I cuddle with them, and that always helps me. Camille also has a stuffed animal that's very special to her. His name is Woodstock, and her parents bought Woodstock from Jamaica four years ago. Camille and Sam both find comfort in their stuffed animals when they're upset or scared, and a thing that scared Camille the most when she was younger was the drain in her bathtub. I used to think, now this is something really weird, I used to think that like in the sink or like in the bathtub, like like either like fish or like sharks could like swim up the pipes and like come into the water and like try to eat me like piranhas or like sharks, like while I was in the bathtub when I was little and I still like take baths more often, like I was afraid that some shark would like squeeze through the tiny drain and like eat me. (laughs) Sam said he has absolutely no fears right now, but he used to be afraid of the shadows that his nightlight used to make before he fell asleep. When Sam isn't hanging out with his cat or in rehearsal, he loves to play outside. He even built something similar to a treehouse with his brother in his backyard. I like to play with my siblings, and uh, we have a swing set, so I like to swing on the swings. And my brother and I have built a treehouse, so that's a pretty fun part of being outside. So it's just a bunch of ropes that are like a tied tied to the tree branches, and we like swing on them and sit on them, and it like supports us. It's fun. It's like a hammock. Sam also has a great support system of friends at school. He said he can't remember the last time him and his friends even fought. I have a new friend who's from Virginia. His name is Hanson, and he's really nice. And then all my friends today, we we built a human pyramid. We, We were, like, crawling on top of each other, and we made, like, three on the bottom, two in the middle, and one on the top. And it really worked out well, but then we collapsed. One time my friend Hendrix came over and we were like jumping in the ivy and I said it it was poison ivy and then I jumped in it, but it wasn't really poison ivy and he was so fooled. I was (laughs) laughing so hard. It's Sam's second year performing in A Christmas Carol and he said it's one of his highlights of his year. Yeah, I want to be an actor when I grow up. Sam's mom is an actor and suggested that Sam try out for A Christmas Carol last year. Then he got past auditions, went into callbacks, and has been obsessed with acting ever since. I love acting because I get to pursue all the different like characters, and I get to meet so many new people because um, there's so many different groups of people that I get to meet and make friends with. All the uh, young ensemble members, the 12 of us, including me, we all become a sort of like family. 
which is really nice. And we all, like, play games together, like Slapjack and Moncala and Poison Dart Frog. (laughs) In case you're like me and feel too old to not know what those games are, Slapjack is a card game and Poison Dart Frog is a game similar to Mafia. Here's how the game works. People stand in a circle and there's one detective and one Poison Dart Frog. The Poison Dart Frog sticks their tongue out at people and those people silently die. And then the detective has three guesses to figure out who the Poison Dart Frog is. This is Camille's third year in A Christmas Carol, and she also has the same passion for acting as Sam, but she wants to combine it with her other passion for writing. Like, I have a lot of passions. Like, I want to be a writer and an actor. Like, I love acting. This is my third year in A Christmas Carol, and it's so fun, and I get to meet all these people and see and pursue to be different characters and all kinds of stuff. And I love writing. I like making characters. And I, something that connects acting and writing together, I like making scripts for movies. And I also like drawing out, like, costumes and stuff and, like, making up my own plays just by myself or even just with my stuffed animals. (laughs) Yeah. She writes a lot of fiction stories, mostly about animals. Sometimes when she gets ideas in the middle of the night, she wakes up, turns on her bed lamp, and quickly jots them down in a notebook so she doesn't forget them. So, like, sometimes me and my friends at my, like, near my neighborhood, like, we like to, like, bring all our stuffed animals outside, like, put them in tiny backpacks and then bring them outside and then pretend to do all these different things with them and, like, make, like, plays and stuff. And we sometimes even, like... If there's, like, extra fabric in our houses, we, like, make them, like, costumes. (laughs) Sam likes hanging out with his cat and playing outside with his siblings and friends. Camille loves writing fiction stories. But what both of them have in common is their love for acting. It's refreshing to meet such exquisitely curious kids who are open to new experiences and who genuinely believe that they can achieve something that they're passionate about. Genuine open-mindedness to new possibilities is precious. And as we grow older, those sorts of possibilities seem to shrink. And in a way, we feel more limited. Even though we have more agency and self-control as adults than we ever did when we were kids. Coming up. Julia has three brothers, all older than her, and growing up, she relied on strangely formalized rules to survive. Here is Julia Elhard with a toy study of an improvised society. Can you just say, like, hi, I'm Steven, something like that. Hello, I'm Steven. I'm, I don't know, what else should I say? I don't know. That's good. Okay. Awesome. I have three older brothers. They're five, seven, and nine years older than me. People sometimes think that means I grew up with, like, personal bodyguards, but what it really means is that I grew up with chaos. Four siblings is really enough for a Hunger Games kind of mentality, and I was not given a pass. I think it's fair to say that my childhood was largely recorded in the lists of grievances I was always making for my parents. They didn't help. I recently called my youngest brother, Stephen, to talk about the rules which thinly separated us from total anarchy, at least from my five-year-old perspective. Here's how he explained it. Yes, we had two big ones. We had unauthorized touching, which was if somebody called unauthorized touching, there was to be no touching of the person, the, the caller of the unauthorized touching. And then there was get out of my room i don't believe i don't know if there was like a if there was a formal sort of legal jargon for this one um 
but it was just like you have to get out of my room and then you just start counting down from whatever arbitrary number you felt like picking and they had to get out of your room by that point and if it didn't happen then you initiated dialogue with the parents and then there was arbitration and then usually some sort of monetary compensation pretty small and that was it unauthorized touching and get out of my room the holy constitution of rules by the time these were called it was usually too late to stop the tears or stop the bleeding but the rules provided a basis for invoking the formal judiciary our parents only our parents had the power to impose maximum sentencing one dollar financial risk felt enormously burdensome to me yeah i remember that the ones that stick out in my mind the most are the ones involving picking out um extremely granular like combinations of change to actually add up to a dollar so like this is the time when like oh i owed i owe julia a dollar so i'm gonna go in my change drawer and i'm gonna like get all of my pennies and see what that adds up to yeah that's that's what they were for how i can make them yeah, how I can make the most inconvenient dollar combination I can possibly make at this point in time. And if, I mean, obviously, when you're when you're small, um, these things, you know, you're not taking costs and benefits into account, as in like what the actual utility of me, you know, punching Julia in the arm versus like what's it going to cost me. It's more like I'm losing something, and I don't want to be losing something, and that's that's painful. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think at some level there was a sort of rational cost-benefit analysis and the benefits were just very high that's true the benefits were extraordinary it was very it was very cathartic (laughs) do you remember any of the things that caused a lot of fights like do you ever remember what we were fighting over um i mean honestly it was just escalation you know somebody wronged somebody and then there were words exchanged and then there were more words exchanged and pretty soon like the scale of the catastrophe seemed to far outweigh whatever initially sort of set it off but i feel like that's pretty human right but Mm -hmm. like when you're obviously when you're a kid it's like you know things get blown way out of proportion very quickly but they really felt like big problems you know well they felt yeah i mean in the context of the life of a of a five to 13 year old, those are large problems. Yeah. Some you've been wronged and there needs to be, there needs to be retribution. think that there were sort of fluid series of alliances that would form and break oh no they were they weren't they weren't actually fluid they were highly dogmatic we had a whole codified system when we were when we were young we would develop uh friendships that we would formally codify like with sort of with certificates surrounding certain topics so like we would go skiing and on this particular vacation peter and i would be ski buddies um, and we would actually have like a like a piece of paper, um, and Alex wasn't a ski buddy for this for this vacation, so he was out. Um, and yeah, but so no, no, it wasn't. It definitely was not. It was fluid in the sense that the, the relationships were constantly changing, you know, sort of just like classic European history. But um, but like it was definitely like formally there were there were definitely formal alliances happening. I would but, say it's nice in the sense that conflicts could be resolved almost instantaneously like friendships could be reformed <laughs> that was certainly that was sort of i don't know if that again I, 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 you don't know if it was just like our family was highly idiosyncratic but it was like yeah we definitely had um a uh, sort of very bipolar relationship among siblings where it was like we could 
instantly forget about an entire week-long or several week-long series of conflicts and become very good friends, especially if it was if it was politically advantageous. Yeah. In the end, there was always the power of unauthorized touching. There was. And yes, get yes. out of my room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that I, I have a feeling that like that the parents um, really realized the monster they were creating when they when they implemented this rule and how badly it would be abused, um, particularly in the context of like I'm going to punch you and then I'm going to call an authorized touching and then if you say that I hit you first, I'm just going to lie. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that certainly, that certainly happened. That still happens, by the way. But unauthorized touching just doesn't seem to work its magic anymore. I don't know. Maybe it just seemed like a bigger deal when we were little. WPRB wants you to know about the Attic Youth Center. The Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only organization exclusively dedicated to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ youth, and has served over 10,000 individuals in nearly 30 years of existence. Their mission is to create opportunities for youth to develop into healthy, independent, civic-minded adults within a safe, supportive community, and to promote the acceptance of LGBTQ youth in society. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit AtticYouthCenter.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next... Oliver Wing speaks to Alex Keen about death, family, friends, and bullies. Special shout out to Alex's dad, Steve, a longtime WPRB listener. So a little while back, I talked to Alex, the son of Steve Keen, a longtime fan of WPRB who lives outside of Philadelphia. Steve and Alex, if you're listening, here's to you. Anyway, Alex is 11 years old and in fifth grade. His favorite subject is science. I like to see chemical reactions. And he's an only child. I'm an only child. So I asked him, in the spirit of today's episode, what things matter the most to him. And he answered surprisingly fast. My family and friends. Anyway, here are some parts of the conversation we had. Well, they're both here for me when I need emotional help or, like, support. I think it was, like, a couple months ago, my fish died. It was a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It was at night. I was... Watching my fish, because I do that every night until I sleep. And I noticed he wasn't really very active. So you called your you called your parents and you said, uh, what'd you say? I said, I don't, I'm really worried about color. Color was the name of Alex's fish. He was orange and white. And they came right up. My mom started to look around the tank. And she saw him on his side, and I started to cry. It wasn't really good. It wasn't, oh, buddy. Yeah. My my whole body just felt empty inside. Like like you were hollow or something? Yeah. Mm. Had you felt that way before? Yes. When? When my... Two cats died. Mm. I mean, was it the same both times? Uh, no. 
it was a little different each time. Mm. So the first time, I just felt sick. I felt like all of my organs had just left my body, and then I might drop. The second time, it felt like most of my organs were gone, and I was—I felt like I was about to throw up. And then, what about this last time when you, when uh, color died? When color died, I just didn't know what to do. And the next day at school, I remember one of my really good friends. His name is Aiden. Mm-hmm. He knows how it feels, and he knows everything's going to be all right. So he told that to me, and I was feeling so much better. So when your parents were up with you, like on your bed, you guys were sitting together. Um, what did you talk about? Well, we talked about how he had lived a good seven years. It was every fish has his time, and I guess this is just it. And did that make you feel better? Yeah. Cause yeah, you... I felt like I really would be okay. I guess I just felt good to talk it out. They sat and we talked and they were just there for me. Mm-hmm. Is it like, do you think about that a lot? About like pets dying, about like animals dying? Yeah, I just find myself thinking about it sometimes. Hmm. I think about all of the pets I have lost and all of the spirits who are always following me. Do you say the spirits that are following you? Yeah. Like, I think they're spirits. Like, follow me and make sure I'm okay. Do you think uh, color is is following you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why do they follow um, um, you specifically and not anyone else? Like, why just you? (laughs) Uh, That I'm really not sure about. Do you think it's because you were maybe special to them in any way? Actually, yeah, that, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's kind of comforting, right? Yeah. Do you think it's only pets that become spirits? Or do you think humans do too? I think both. Do you ever think about, uh, like, death yourself for, like, humans or just for pets? Um, for humans. Yeah? What do you think about yeah. that? Well, I think we're all going to die someday. It's not all the same time. Like, I'm not sure if it'll just be in inter- uh, infinite darkness, or if I'll become another, like a, an animal or something. You know, what do you think it would be like to be uh, Color, who's a spirit now, you think, maybe? Um, I think it'd be really cool to just fly through walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I do in Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. Here's another story Alex told me about uh, his friends sticking up for him at school. This kid. 
Antonio? You wear your, like, shirt? And he always picks on me. And so one day he gets me into, like, a fight. He was like, hey, stupid. You got a back right on your clothes. That's dumb. I thought you were a nerd. I went, yeah, being a nerd is a good thing. He's so smart. And he goes, and just is so, like, weirded out by that. He goes, oh, that, that's stupid. And my friends hear that. So they come over, but back off. And so he lost me alone. I was so thankful. I think without that, my head would have exploded. <laughs> Why? Were you that angry? I honestly think my head would have exploded if they didn't get in. But, of course, Alex's head didn't explode. He had his friends. WPRB wants you to know, don't let your waste trash New Jersey's waters. If you leave it on the ground, chances are the rain will wash it into our streams, lakes, and the ocean. By following a few simple rules, you can help make the water you drink, swim, and fish in cleaner. Don't dump anything into storm drains. The rain carries litter and other waste through the storm drains and into our waterways, so don't let her. Follow directions for applying pesticides and fertilizers. Properly dispose of household hazardous waste, such as oil, bleach, and ammonia. And always pick up after your pet. Help protect the environment and our natural resources. Clean water. It's up to you, New Jersey. Sponsored by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, the Montgomery Township Green Team, and this station. For more information, log on to www.cleanwaternj.org. Again, go to cleanwaternj.org for more information. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. In our final story this evening, reporter Remy Rea talks to his sister, a seventh grader, about how she's coping with adolescence. I mean, and I'm not saying that, like, oh, I'm at this place now where, like, everything's fine in my life. Because, I mean, it's not fine, but um, I think that... Um... I woke up at was seven, I waited till eleven just to figure out that no one would call. I think I've got a lot of friends, but I don't hear from them. What's another night all alone? When you're spending every day on your own And here it goes I'm just a kid Middle school is tough. There are the awkward years, the beginnings of puberty. And looking back, anyone will have stories to tell. But my sister is in the thick of it right now. Nina is 13, she's halfway through 7th grade, and she has problems to solve. Alright, so I'm asking you what is a problem you're trying to solve right now. Getting rid of the lines and ropes, stupid forehead. Okay, and how are you going to solve it? I don't know, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Out of nowhere, she had this worry line in her forehead. And she was, well, worried about it. But yeah, I'm like scared of them being there. Because I don't like them. Because it makes me look like an old man. Why are you scared of them being there? Is, is you worried about someone judging you or what? I just don't want people to see it. I don't like how I look. In general? Yeah. Really? I mean, that too, but... Don't you think it's a little early to be too concerned about that? No. I mean, people have, like, insecurities starting at, like, age negative five. She's right. And she's found at least one way to address those insecurities for herself. Today, it involves Google. 
and ice and a lot of water. You want to know how I solve problems? This is how I solve my freaking problems. What is your hope with icing your forehead? It's gonna go away. But there are things you just can't look up in seventh grade. When I think back to middle school, it was full of challenges, mostly social. I remember moving across the country in sixth grade and starting at a new school halfway through the year. It sucked, and it took me a while to find my bearings. So I thought I pretty much knew what my sister would tell me when I asked her what types of problems she was facing. Crushes, acne, annoying teachers, but she had a lot more to say. So basically, okay, somebody can be your best friend and you can like have all your trust with them and like as much as you want to like stay with them forever you can't like let your want of keeping a friendship get in the way of like your own mental health and I think that like the past couple years like I've so like become a person who is like putting everybody, like, before myself and not, like, caring about, like, my own, like I said, like, self-worth and, like, not caring about, like, myself as a person. It's heavier than I expected. Looking back, I thought my problems in seventh grade were small. And some of them may have been. But talking to my sister, I realized that wasn't how she saw it. This is her world, and it's complicated. And her experience might actually be relevant for someone like me who's had seven more years on this planet to figure things out. If you had to, like, tell someone like me who's never been and probably won't ever be a seventh-grade girl mm -hmm. what the hardest part of it is, from your perspective, what would it be? I mean, I'm only, like, four months into it, which, like, the first, like, three months were pretty rough, but I feel like not having to like rely on others to like bring you happiness and not having to like rely on others opinions to like know your self-worth yeah nina says other kids in her grade think about these things too but it's not a constant worry how are seventh graders supposed to um f focus on school when they're dealing with all of this stuff <laughs> no everybody's like failing school <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I mean, in the end, like, everybody's parents want them to, like, do great in school or whatever. And so, like, that's what people tend to, like, prioritize a lot um, is, like, schoolwork. And so, like, I don't know, there's, like, the first day of school where everybody's wearing, like, nice clothes and they want to make good impressions and stuff. And then, last, in the, like, last month of school, like, everybody's just over it and, like, it doesn't care anymore. I mean, in the end, everybody's just wearing, like, sweatpants and a hoodie to school. Seventh grade is full of change. You're one of the bigger kids on the block. You're finally old enough to legally use Facebook and Snapchat. Not that you weren't doing that already. But you're also confronted with a lot of scary change. Whether it's friends coming and going, or your family moving across the country. For Nina, getting through this change is a matter of caring for yourself. I think just knowing that, like you as a person like as long as you're good enough for yourself is that's like the best you can do sometimes and like once you kind of establish that then you can start working towards like who am I actually trying to like please and is that even worth it but yeah and that's something I'm not even like at a place to like say that I've gotten to that point yet but I think most people probably aren't yeah Nina might not have all the answers to these big questions, but she's got some good ideas. And at age 13, she does know some things, for certain. Drink water. I want to drink more water because it's supposed to clear your skin. <sighs> and it's supposed to not give you forehead wrinkles. And um, it's just supposed to be like all around really good for you. And I don't drink any water during the day. And that's why I never go to the bathroom during the day. Mm. Well said. For WPRB, I'm Remy Rea.
And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRV Studios in Picture Perfect, Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders, but this episode was directed and hosted by Oliver Wang. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Oliver Wang, Anna Hiltner, Julia Ilhart, Elizabeth Shway, and Remy Rea. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.